Good morning again, church. If you've got a Bible with you today, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 12 today. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. Um, I wasn't here last week. Uh, Pastor Brandon Boatner was here last week. Were you blessed by Pastor Brandon coming by? Yeah, it's been a joy to get to know him. And I hope a, a, a regular rhythm of prayer whenever we gather together on Sunday mornings is praying for other churches that are in our association, praying that God would continue to make them faithful and strengthen them as they reach their community. But Pastor Brandon has been, he's been a gift to me, and I'm, I'm glad that you were served well last Sunday. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. If you're able to stand out of reverence for God's word, I invite you to do so. This is what God's word says to us today. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the eyes of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, my city, a stone, a chosen cornerstone, and precious, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So that the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, that stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may what? Proclaim that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word to us today. You can be seated. A decade ago, I used to do sales for a large telecommunications company. That's fancy language for cell phones, okay? Sounds a lot better than saying cell phones, doesn't it? I was commissioned. I just started this new job. And um, I don't know, you, you ever start a job before where their training program really wasn't great? They just thrust you right into the middle of it and like they just have at it. And you kind of do, 
and like you're, you're fumbling around, you, you might be adding things to people's like bill that shouldn't be added to their bill. And then they come back a week and a half later, all red faced and angry. And you're just like, I'm sorry, how can I make it better? Um, that was my life for the first six months at this place. And when you're in sales, like time equals money, okay? So not only am I doing really bad things to people's bills, not intentionally, um, but I'm also not making a tremendous amount of money either. It hurt quite a bit. Um, it it might have been mitigated if there was a better like training process for me. Come to think of it, maybe not. It was just a complicated system, friends. But the Christian life, the primary vocation that you and I have is to honor Jesus. You and I were created to give glory to God. And one of the primary ways in which you and I do that, Peter's getting at now in this passage. Verse 9, he says, you and I, his friends in the Asia Minor at that time, he's saying that we proclaim Christ. How do you do that though? I think we see three different things. Like when, when you don't know how to articulate all the mysteries of the gospel, I think he gives us three really clear things that we can do when we're engaging lost people. And I'll give them to you up front. When we proclaim Christ, we proclaim his story. We proclaim his story. We proclaim his mercy too. We tell people about the mercy of Jesus. And we also proclaim that he's worthy. There are a lot of good things that we can do in this life. But there's only one whom we are to give our entire lives to. First, his story, though. Look at verses 4 through 8. You see this pivot now from the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. He's talking about how you and I relate to God and then to each other. But in chapter 2, there's a clear pivot. It's not just about how you and I relate to one another anymore and how we relate to God. It's now about how we relate to the rest of the world. Do you see that? But he does this in four really short verses that really tell the whole story of the Old Testament. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the eyes of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. He goes on to quote Isaiah later on, behold, I'm, I'm building, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious stone, and whoever believes in him will never, ever, ever be put to shame. Peter, in very short order, is compacting the story of the Old Testament in four very small verses. From the very beginning, I talk about this a lot, but I want you to be able to see that evangelism and discipleship are not just New Testament conventions. It has been since the very beginning God's aim to fill the entire earth with his glory. When he creates Adam and Eve, 
He tells them, he gives them a mandate. Do you remember what it is? Be fruitful and multiply. Another way to say that is, have a lot of kids. Enjoy one another in marital bliss and let the fruit of your relationship and life with me fill the earth. This is super critical because when God makes Adam, what does he say? Let us make man in our image. How is God going to fill the earth with his glory? We can say that God is everywhere, omnipresent, but in a very real specific way, his rule and reign and peace would be felt throughout all the earth through Adam and Eve. But you know the story, in Adam all die now. Adam lets sin into the camp. And the image is marred. And the mission seems to be lost until God promises to make for himself a people, Israel. He calls Abram, now Abraham. He calls Isaac. He calls Jacob. Later on, 400 plus years later, you find this massive group of people, Israel, in the clutches of Pharaoh. calls Moses to himself to be the rescuer of God's people. And he gives him one task, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they may worship me. The intent wasn't for them just to not have chains anymore, but it was for them to come back to their previous vocation. They were created to give glory and worship to Yahweh because he deserves it. And so it starts off right. They meet with God at Sinai. They're blown away by his majesty and power. They're afraid of him. But they want to know him. But that doesn't stay around for very long. When you read the rest of the story of the Bible, especially the book of Judges, you see faithfulness, but only momentarily. Then they fall into sin and slavery. They cry out, God sends a rescuer. And then it looks like everything's going back to the direction that it's supposed to be. And that is God's people with him in humble obedience and dependence. But that's not how the story ends. And so then God sends a king. You would think that you can legislate righteousness and goodness throughout a land, and you can't. That's a good word for this upcoming election year, by the way. We can try. But even with the very best of kings in the Old Testament, his actions split the kingdom. Adam failed, Israel failed, the king failed. Tim, how do you get stories out of living stones from here? You get them because in the Old Testament, stones are memorials. 
Stones are meant to act as reminders of where God had met with his people in the past. You go to Joshua chapter 4, what happened? In chapter 3, or in chapter 4, excuse me, God commands Joshua, I want you to get a group of people together and drag rocks up onto the bank of the Jordan River. Why? So that you can remember when I had you cross the Jordan on dry ground. The river stops. God provides and makes a way for them to go into Canaan and conquest. Israel was going to remember what God had done for them. Friends, few folks know where God met with Abraham, though. God's presence isn't at Sinai anymore. And I don't know if you know this or not, there is no temple currently on the Temple Mount. God's presence is not there either. No one was able to make God's promises come to pass. No one was able until we see the Christ, the living stone. The eternal memorial. Christ comes to earth. He brings God's glory to earth. God's own son comes to fulfill the Father's plan. Where Adam failed, Jesus didn't. Where Israel failed and fell into disobedience and distrust, Jesus charges with courage. What the king couldn't do through force, Jesus did through his death. And so he does what is seemingly the most impossible thing on the planet. Through Jesus, God's glory can now fill the earth. The original mission that God gave to humanity can now be fulfilled because now Jesus transforms you and me. Jesus changes you and me. Verse 5, you yourselves now are like living stones. Through you, God is able to declare to the entire world, I've done something here. Can you imagine that? You're not just a sack of flesh and blood, but through your life, God declares, I am making all things new. I forgive sin. I love Blaine more than the stars in the sky. I care for Debbie. You're a big old billboard of God's grace, a big old neon light. And so, church, we proclaim Him. We proclaim His story from beginning to end. And this might be kind of scary. For some of us, Tim, I, I, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't spend thousands of dollars on an MDiv program. Let me tell you something. I'm in school right now in a PhD program, and there's some people there that just aren't aware of what the Bible teaches either. 
But when you read Acts, when you're reading 1 Peter here, the best sermons and the best conversations that Christians have with lost people, we're not talking about, stay with me here, we're not talking about the hypostatic union. We're not talking about how to parse Greek. The most amazing sermons and conversations in the New Testament are where normal everyday people are showing how biblical history has been fulfilled. How God's promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. You might not have memorized the entirety of the Old Testament, and that's okay. You can tell people about how God created the heavens and the earth, though, and how because of sin, everything isn't the way that it's supposed to be. But in Christ, he promises to make all things new, and all you have to do is trust and follow him. Is that complicated? Is that hard? No, you can tell his story. You can tell his story. So we don't preach me. And we, as amazing of a history as Hazelwood Baptist Church has, as I understand it, correct me afterwards, we incorporated in 1958 to the early 2000s. Apparently, we sent out 30 full-time people in the Christian service, whether that's missionaries whether that's worship leaders, student ministers, whatever. Like, we have a really cool history. But that's couched into the history of Jesus' redemption for all things. We get to be a part of that story. And that's a story that we're inviting other people into. We proclaim Christ. Though others might have rejected him, he hasn't rejected us. Though others might have discarded him, he will never, ever, ever let us be put to shame. We tell the story, but we also tell people about his mercy. We tell people about his mercy. Jump down to verse 10 for a moment. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a stunning thought here. Peter assumes that God is creator. That's not an issue in his mind. Tim, why does that matter? Because we live in a world where we're not sure who makes us. Maybe we are in charge of our own destinies. Peter assumes that God creates all things. God can claim ownership of us, and that's not a problem. He says that at one time you and I didn't receive mercy, but now we have. We weren't his people, but now we are. The problem here isn't that God didn't create us because he did, foibles and all. The the, the problem isn't 
ownership. The problem is relational. The problem isn't that God does not have ultimate claim on your life. The problem is fellowship. At one time, we were far from God. At one time, we did not receive mercy from him. One of the most critical things to realize in the Bible, while God is love, friends, you read 1 John 4, you see this multiple times. God is love. What is God? He is love. He is, when Christ was here, he was the very embodiment of love. He is love incarnate. And what is love but patient and kind and keeps no record of wrongs? But he is so much more than love. The dominant characteristic of God in the Bible is what? I heard someone say it. It is holiness. You feel that theme again throughout this book, don't you? Be holy for I am holy. You're going to be set apart for me. Why? Because God is about his kingdom. God is about his own brand. And he would be a narcissist and an arrogant jerk. If he weren't the only place where healing and peace and rest could come from. But if he is, like Augustine said, we, we find our being in him even. than for him to command and expect repentance and trust is the most loving thing a holy God can call us to do. The problem is when we have holiness, we have a God who also expects justice. And when justice is left wanting, because of incredible, awful crimes against the kingdom of God. Then comes wrath. Then comes judgment and separation. These characteristics are not at odds with one another, though. In Christ we see both love and holiness meet together at the very same place. They have a connection point. What does the cross communicate to you and me? God hates our sin. God hates that you and I can be so willing to trade him for a lie, for mirage, but he also loves you. It's in the cross where both God's love and holiness are satisfied. So when we deserve justice 
and wrath. We receive mercy. God is both holy and love. And so we proclaim Christ. We proclaim his story. That's true. But we proclaim his mercy too. When you are engaging lost friends and family members, we do not do well without expressing Jesus' mercy to them. That Jesus is a merciful and kind God. The mercy of Jesus sees the broken and the oppressed and seeks to free them. Certainly from sin and its bondage. But he also seeks to free them from other people that would otherwise abuse them here too. It's the mercy of Jesus like Isaiah would say. He will never, ever, ever bend a bruised reed and he will not quench a smoldering flax. In other words, he's not going to kick you when you're down. It's the mercy of Jesus that stops everything that he would want to do otherwise and care for at great expense to himself anyone and everyone who might be bleeding out. You and I, we proclaim his mercy as a special group of people. While we didn't receive mercy, we now have received mercy because of what he's done. And it's because of his mercy, we now get to say, I know that I wasn't yours before, but now I am. I know that you made me, but now I relate to you on a completely different plane, on a completely different level. chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, spiritually, legally, relationally, Jesus' death and resurrection transforms you and me utterly and completely. so that you and I can do what we were originally designed to do. Here's the deal, though. And while there aren't a whole lot of young people in here, older folks, I would urge you to pray for the next generations to come. There's a startling statistic. Folks just younger than me, that are in the church in the West, especially in America, that have bought this idea, this lie, that urging people to trust in Christ is somehow um, immoral. That evangelism and beckoning people to trust Christ is somehow doing violence or being abusive to them. The temptation that you have right now might be to like shake your head in disgust almost or like, well, how could they get that? It's a tragedy. I think we fall into the same pit though, the same lie when we don't push mercy 
people younger than me not wanting to engage people about Jesus can be just as awful or terrifying or unhelpful as talking about Jesus and not communicating the mercy of Jesus. In fact, in some ways it might be worse to only speak of Jesus as judge and not to speak of him as someone that is able to forgive sin. We proclaim his mercy to people that are very, very far off because they're really, really far from him. God really is holy and he really will come to judge the living and the dead. And sin separates people from him. And hell is real. We have a deficient gospel that we communicate when we don't connect Jesus' death on behalf of sinners. You heard over and again, Jesus releases us out into the world to give the gospel away to sinners. We have to communicate this to people. Not for the sake of a church, but because he's worth it and because he loves them. Do you feel that? Here's the final thing. The first two are related around the words that we use. The last one is related to how we live our life. St. Francis of Assisi, apparently, allegedly, he said something like, preach a gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Friends, preaching the gospel always requires words. We always have to articulate it with our mouth. However, there's a way in which we can live that detracts from our announcement that Jesus has come. Words create worlds. We speak loud to people about how God's story and mercy completely change the landscape of our lives. But our proclamation, our evangelism, our announcement to lost people isn't less than that. It's a full body exercise. God puts you on display in other people's lives to demonstrate his power and glory. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your what? Your good deeds. Does this sound familiar? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's borrowing from Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus says this right in Matthew 5. Do good things so that people might glorify your Father in heaven. What's the good? Not just being helpful and doing awesome, wonderful things, kind things, appropriate things. It's also to abstain from the flesh, from the passions of the flesh. Literally, he says, we distance ourselves from our old passions. As sojourners and strangers who are really far from, from God physically, we know that one day we're going to be at home with him. Our hearts are not distant from him. That's what he's saying. Instead, we keep our conduct honorable. We're about the gospel of Jesus here. We love it. It's the reason why we gather together. 25,000 people or so, they'll live in the city of Hazelwood, right? If the entire city of Hazelwood descended upon our church, what would they see? What would they hear? Would they see what we do as good and advantageous and beautiful? I'm willing to wager they would. What's beautiful isn't getting exactly everything that we want in this life. What's advantageous isn't only serving in the way that we want to. That's the flesh. But what is good and what is beautiful, what is advantageous and wonderful is warring against our old fleshly desires. And pleading with the God of heaven to put our old sins and old desires underneath our feet so that other people outside of here might glorify the one that made us and saved us. Can we get real practical for a moment? What's necessary for people to come to faith in Jesus? I got a couple minutes left. I'll just sit here for a moment. What, what is necessary for people to come to faith in Jesus, right? Think about that for a second. What is it that's going to call people to, to repentance and life change? Your gut instinct might be to go to Romans 10, 9, and 10. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's good. Paul goes on to say, though, later on in that same chapter, just a couple verses later, what does he say? How will they believe unless someone is sent? Can you imagine having a message to tell someone, but no one able to go, no one willing to go? We proclaim that he's worthy as we go. 
even in talking about like the, the role of a pastor or an overseer or an elder, all of these words, they, the Bible uses them interchangeably. We're going to get there in, in 1 Peter 5. But Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, one thing, preach the word. The announcement that we have, like it's world shaping for some people, for all people who would trust and believe. But there are qualifications for people that would do that too. And all they do is communicate that they actually believe what they're calling people to do too. Life and doctrine matter. Preaching the message and living it in front of people matters. We're people of the book. We're not just interested in getting a whole bunch of knowledge. Church, this is a deployment center. In light of hearing this, Jesus sends you out into the world to proclaim his excellencies, his multiple excellencies of his goodness and might and his strength, his power, his kindness, and goodness. And you get to do that by telling people the story of Jesus. You get to do that by, by showing people the mercy of Jesus. And you get to do that by demonstrating that Jesus is worth all of your life. Go today and go this week proclaiming his excellencies to people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for, again, the word. Thank you for Peter and his kindness um, in being straight with us about who we once were and who we now are in light of Jesus. Our vocation is different. Our identity is different. So help us be faithful in giving the gospel away to people. Would you do this, please? pray in Jesus' name. Amen.